hello and welcome to our audience. Uh, this is the Students Talk Security podcast series. Today I'm interviewing Colonel Ian Brazier, retired of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, I'm Evan Muller. I'm a senior at Notre Dame and an undergraduate fellow at the Notre Dame International Security Center. I'm originally from Roanoke, Virginia. I'll now introduce our guest, Colonel Brazier. Uh, Colonel Brazier, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Ian Brazier serves as an attorney advisor at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, where his legal practice in includes the Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States and the U.S. Telecommunications Sector. Prior to joining the DHS, he served as a legal advisor and special advisor to the Armed Forces Department and the International Committee of the Red Cross Regional Delegation for the United States and Canada, where his work concerned emerging issues related to armed conflict and their humanitarian impact. Ian served in the United States Marine Corps for 30 years and concluded his career as Deputy Legal Advisor at the White House within the National Security Council. This assignment included responsibility for the provision of legal advice to the President of the United States and then National Security Advisor on matters pertaining to, to NATO, Russia, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, India arms control slash non-proliferation, weapons of mass destruction, and space and maritime law. During his military career, Ian served in a variety of operational and staff assignments to include service as the Senior Legal Advisor for a Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force deployed to Southeast Asia, Senior Legal Advisor for the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit deployed to Afghanistan, Iraq, and Liberia, Deputy Counsel, Legal Counsel to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Military Assistant to the General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Defense and the Office of the Secretary of Defense, Senior Legal Advisor for the U.S. Marine Corps Forces, Central Command, and Deputy Legal Advisor to NATO's International Security Assistance Force in Kabul, Afghanistan. He frequently served as a member of senior level interagency and defense related delegations to Switzerland, France, Indonesia, the Czech Republic, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Bulgaria, Kenya, Slovakia, Romania, Ukraine, Lebanon, Iraq, and Colombia. Some of his personal awards and decorations from his time in the Marine Corps include the Defense Superior Service Medal, Legion of Merit Medal, Bronze Star Medal, in the combat action ribbon with gold star. Colonel Brazier, I'm just gonna hop right into the questions if that's good with you. That's great. So I'm just gonna start off, what kind of got you into the Marine Corps? How did you join? Um, sort of what motivated you to become a Marine? Well, thanks again, Evan, and thanks to the Notre Dame International Security Center and uh, look forward to uh, having a dialogue with, uh, with Evan uh, this evening. Um, you know, I think so many people join the Marine Corps or any branch of service for so many different reasons. And uh, when I was in high school in Phoenix, Arizona, I um, kind of lurched between, um, as a sophomore in high school, I was going to join the Army. As a junior in high school, I was going to join the Air Force. And then my senior year, I was kind of uh, back to the Army until my friend from across the street surprised me and joined the Marine Corps, enlisted in the Marine Corps. And although we were best friends, he didn't tell me, he just showed up one day and, and said, hey, I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And when he was done with recruit training, I picked him up from the airport. And um, my friend Jeff was a, a, a much different person. And I really started to think about what kind of culture that I wanted to join. And, and I do recommend everyone thinking about uh, joining a 
particular branch of the military is to explore the culture that you're joining as probably the best method of determining whether it's going to be a good fit, because it's not always a good fit. For me, I just started thinking about what I liked. I, um, I liked the physical exercise. I liked what I saw as far as the discipline. Um, I liked the um, kind of the naval and maritime traditions of the, of the Marine Corps. And I just thought it was going to be a little bit rougher and tougher. And, um, and that felt like that's who I wanted to be, who I thought I was. And 18 years old, I enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserve. And um, 30 years later, I, I, um, I completed my career in the Marine Corps at the White House, which is an interesting place to wrap up your military career because there aren't a whole lot of military uh, folks working at the White House. But, you know, looking back, uh, it was a great vision uh, to join the Marine Corps. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't have loved it anymore. Back to you, Evan. Got it, sir. Well, sort of going into college and through your initial stint in the Marine Corps, what kind of motivated you more to get into law and become a judge advocate? Yeah, good question. Um, for me, it was accidental how I ended up in the legal profession in the Marine Corps. Um, many of the, uh, uh, the many of those in the listening audience, this, this will sound familiar, that you know people, uh, particularly if you're going into the Marine Corps or any of the branches of the militaries, that you know people that probably are in love with aviation. For as long as they can remember, they've wanted to be a pilot. And then they want to go fly jets. They want to go fly helicopters. Um, or they want to fly, you know, big C-130 uh, cargo aircraft, um, something like that. And then there are those people that um, are born to be in the infantry or the artillery or the, in, or the intelligence community, any of those military occupational specialties. And for me, um, how I got into law was not that I loved the law and that I love Constitution as much as I love the Constitution. But, you know, when I was in high school and college, um, I didn't think about loving the law. What I thought I was interested in doing when I first enlisted in the Marine Corps is I tried to enlist in something that's kind of similar to military police. It's called security forces. And um, security forces back, back in the 80s and 90s, their, their primary mission was to guard uh, I'm using air quotes right now, special weapons. And you can look up what that means. So that's what I wanted to do is enlist a long contract, active duty um, for six years. But because that, that occupation was not open when I wanted to enlist, um, I just decided to uh, try out the reserves um, on the recommendation of, of one of my recruiters. And, you know, I was 18 and I, I frankly didn't know a lot better. Uh, and so I kind of got into the reserves um, in a non, you know, uh, military police or security forces and certainly wasn't anything to do with the law. But um, once I was in, in, in the reserves, I, I was looking at, I was really interested in joining kind of the officer community, getting through college and then becoming an officer. 
And the officer selection officer, who is the uh, recruiter for officers in the Marine Corps, um, talked to me about two guaranteed programs in the Marine Corps. One was aviation and one was law. I wasn't interested in flying, but I was kind of interested in the law in that it sounded very law enforcement. And I kind of wanted to control my own future a little bit. So, um, and I knew that if you didn't have either an aviation or law contract, you would go into the Marine Corps and you'd compete for your occupational specialty. And if you wanted to go and be an intelligence officer, the Marine Corps might tell you, no, you're going to go and work in motor transport or supply or infantry artillery. So um, I ended up signing a law contract because I thought I might like it. And, and I kind of started going down the law path. And it wasn't until I really started practicing law uh, when I, my first duty station was in Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, and particularly the law that applies to military operations when you deploy or in a combat environment. So my first, um, my first deployment was to Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and Indonesia. And I loved the Marine Corps expeditionary legal practice um, and working with uh, US allies and partners around the world. And that's kind of how I started down the legal path. Got it, sir. And um, sort of looking back on your career, it seems a lot of your assignments were with operational law. And specifically, you mentioned earlier um, when I was talking to you about your time with uh, General Mattis in Afghanistan. I was wondering if you could touch on that and what your experience with General Mattis is, especially now that he's considered an almost like mythic figure within the Marine Corps. Yes, well, um, my my path to working for General uh, General Mattis um, was a little bit of a unique one, and I didn't see that coming. Um, you mentioned uh, when you were doing a summary of my biography up front that I served the staff judge advocate or the senior legal advisor for a Marine Expeditionary Unit, and on September eleventh, two thousand one. I had just come back from pre-deployment leave. So that period of leave before you um, deploy somewhere. And I was um, the legal advisor for this Marine Expeditionary Unit or a MU scheduled to deploy to the Mediterranean, scheduled to deploy on September 19th, 2001. So I had just come back uh, from from my leave period and I'm getting ready to get on the ship Cross the Atlantic with the U.S. Navy and and 2,200 Marines, and do some really great exercises in in the Mediterranean and spend Christmas in Rome. So that was all pretty exciting to me. But but I woke up in Washington D.C. on Capitol Hill in particular on the morning of September 11th, and we all know what happened then. And my legal clerk Lance Corporal Brewster called me up and said, "Sir, you need to get back to the base." The ships are coming off the coast tomorrow morning, and we're going to go up to New York. So um, when all of the roads opened up in Washington, D.C., they were all closed. um, And I drove past the Pentagon going south back to Camp June, where my unit was located. The Pentagon was still on fire from the um, aircraft that hit, um, hit the Pentagon on September 11th. And ultimately, my unit didn't go to New York. 
but we did leave on time on September 19, 2001. We crossed the Atlantic. And then we um, ended up in October of 2001, starting an exercise in the Egypt, in the desert in Egypt called Exercise Bright Star. And that's when I first met Brigadier General Mattis. He was not my boss and me. Um, and we started to hear rumors that he was going to be the senior Marine Corps general leading um, really uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, um, you know, in southern Afghanistan. So fast forward after a lot of planning on board um, uh, several different U.S. Uh, Navy ships off the coast of, uh, of Pakistan, we executed um, kind of the assault into Afghanistan in November of 2001. We seized a remote desert airstrip called Camp Rhino in southern Afghanistan. And that is where um, Secretary Mattis said that he was going to use me as his lawyer. And, you know, I was pretty excited because I was the only lawyer, the only military lawyer that I was aware of in the country of Afghanistan. And General Mattis kind of, as, as far as I knew, the you know the senior ground commander in all of Afghanistan, and 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 I was excited to think about all of those things that I practiced in training. Is that I go to put them on, put them into motion. For example, we knew we were uh, going to receive a lot of uh, prisoners um, very quickly, and I was excited uh, to think about the third Geneva Conventions that talks about. Uh, the protections required under international law when you take prisoners in an armed conflict. But, you know, working for General Mattis, uh, getting to that part of, of, of your, your question, is um, he's a leader who makes decisions very quickly based on the information he has at the time. And you kind of, when you're working for someone like him, you kind of need to strap your seatbelt on uh, because it's going to be a fast ride and it's going to be bumpy. And um, you need to, I think, you need not to take things personally if there are tense moments, and there will be tense moments. And there were with, with, uh, with General Mattis. Um, and uh, so, you know, there was so much going on at that period of time. There were Marines uh, in the mountains of, uh, of Afghanistan looking for Osama bin Laden. We had Marines reopening the U.S embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, and then that had been closed for decades. And so it was a really exciting thing. And um, I know when you get to your question, you know, about my service at the White House, I'll tell you kind of how I connected with, uh, with, with General Mattis there. Understood. I was wondering if you could also touch on your experience with the International Committee for the Red Cross in Afghanistan, which where you ended up working after your time in the Marine Corps, and as well as the importance of the values of humanitarian law, and the rule of law in warfare? Yeah, so um, when I was General Mattis's uh, legal advisor in Afghanistan in, in 2001, December 2001, January 2002, um, we started receiving a lot of prisoners every day. And um, initially, um, we had some challenges in dealing with the numbers, um, making sure that we met our legal obligations to care for 
prisoners in an armed conflict. That's an international legal requirement. That's incredibly important uh, for the United States. And we needed to set an example. And um, <clears throat> so when we received the first prison on December 18th, 2001, I, um, I knew that at some point we were going to have to have a discussion and meetings with the International Committee, the Red Cross. And their missions, uh, their mission is, the guard, is to serve as the guardian of the Geneva Conventions. And they routinely visit uh, um, prisoners in armed conflict around the world every day of the year. Um, and so we had, after the first prisoners arrived in the middle of the night, we were trying to keep you know, that fact secret for a lot of good operational reasons. Uh, the very next morning, I woke up and uh, the operations chief, a gunnery sergeant came to me. He said, hey, sir, listen, there's some, somebody from the Red Cross at the front gate for you at the security checkpoint that we'd set up at the front, made a front gate. And so I walked out there and I, I couldn't imagine how anyone outside of our small Marine Corps unit would know that the U.S. were receiving some of the first prisoners just, you know, 12 hours prior. So I walked out to the gate and sure enough, there's a guy from the Red Cross. And I walked up to him. I said, hi, my name's Major Brazier. How can I help you? And he says, my name is so-and-so. I'm with the International Committee of the Red Cross. I understand you have prisoners. And I said, yes, we do. Come on in. And that was the first, that was the start of my long relationship with the International Committee of the Red Cross. And over the, ne uh, the course of the next month or two, my job was to uh, operate um, side by side with those uh, delegates from the International Committee of the Red Cross as they registered the prisoners, met one-on-one -on -one, uh, privately with the prisoners um, while the Red Cross um, provided the prisoners with a, a Red Cross message that would go back to the prisoner's family uh, to let them know that they had been captured and where they were generally. Um, and in working so closely with the International Committee of the Red Cross, I really began to appreciate what their mission was. They are impartial, neutral, and independent. Um, they keep secrets incredibly well, but they are there um, to, um, to ensure that the detaining authorities, um, like we were um, in, in 2001 in Afghanistan, that the detaining authorities um, understand um, if they don't already, you know, the international legal obligations. So, um, so that's kind of how I got to the International Committee of the Red Cross. And let me talk about, you know, the importance of, uh, of international humanitarian law, which is the way the, the International Committee of the Red Cross refers to that body of law that pertains to um, armed conflict. And for U.S. forces, it's referred to the law of war or the law of armed conflict, but it's the same body of law. Um, I, I will tell you that I think, um, you know, when the United States enters into treaties, such as Geneva Conventions, they become um, 
you know, part of the supreme law of the land. Um, and it's really important, whether you like all of the minute details in a treaty, that your government <laughs> has sent you to do something and abide by the international legal obligations. So, so we certainly took that very seriously. Um, and, but I think, you know, for, for those considering uh, serving in the military, um, understand that the, um, the humanitarian side of conflict is incredibly important, that it is not inconsistent um, with your country giving you permission to kill on behalf of the country, yet always having a humanitarian lens on, on those military actions. Um, and I, I really, you know, kind of bringing it back to, to General Mattis, I think if I could ask you to read one document following, you know, listening to this podcast, I would recommend that you read General Mattis's letter from March of 2003 that he um, sent to his Marines that were about to cross into Iraq and begin um, the, the uh, US um, intervention in Iraq in 2003. And look at the language that General Mattis uses when he's talking about killing the enemy, yet protecting those um, Iraqi soldiers, the enemy, if they choose to surrender. Now, now General Mattis is not talking specifically addressing the Geneva Conventions or the law specifically. He is really talking about the principles, those ethical, moral, and legal principles that underpin the law of armed conflict and the law of war. And he uses such language as, you know, demonstrating chivalry, um, you know, chivalry actions and so using soldierly compassion with those, those actions that you're taking on the battlefield and always coming back, particularly with, with, with General Mattis, um, that, that, that line, uh, that verse from the Marines hymn, which is first to fight for right and freedom and to keep your honor clean. And, and what General Mattis is talking about there in keeping your honor clean is really, um, you know, focusing your efforts on the enemy, not on the civilian population, and, and recognizing there are instances when uh, the enemy, when, when they do surrender or when they're wounded and out of the fight, they become protected and they may not be targeted. And that's one of the great ways that you keep your honor clean to include the way you treat prisoners in an armed conflict. Back to you, Evan. Sir, you also mentioned your time in the White House and the National Security Council. What were some of the most challenging parts of the job and any differences you noticed between the two administrations? I noted that you served both under the Obama administration and the Trump administration. So, um, yeah, the challenges of, of uh, working at the White House as an active duty military officer, um, you know, um, the, the challenges are numerous. Um, but I think by the time you get to that, if if you get to that point in your career where you might be what they call detailed to the White House, um, you hopefully have seen a few things 
done a few things that have built confidence in that you may be uh, stepping into a new environment that you're unfamiliar with, but you are comfortable being in situations where you are uncomfortable, if that makes sense. So um, when I went to the White House, um, I'd had a lot of different experiences. I'd had uh, a lot of experience with what we refer to in Washington, D.C. as the U.S. interagency. Um, and how does national security happen and how is it coordinated and integrated between the Defense Department, the intelligence community, the director of national intelligence, uh, director of C uh, the CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency under the Defense Department? Um, how is national security uh, coordinated and integrated with the State Department, with the Department of Justice? with the Department of Treasury, uh, the Department of Commerce. There are national security um, tools, particularly that US, uh, US Department of Treasury has that many people are not familiar with. And thankfully I'd had enough exposure to the US interagency and national security in Washington DC that I understood kind of what the departments and agencies could bring to national security. What I think I found particularly challenging, as did most of the National Security Council staff, was getting used to that this is going to be the only time in your career where there is no higher headquarters. This is it. Um, you work for the president. And for me, being a military lawyer, um, one of the biggest challenges was early on is if there is some document going to the president for approval that when you, as a lawyer, review that document, you are most likely the last lawyer providing legal advice and legal commentary before it goes to the president of the United States. So there's no in-between um, you, there's no lawyer above you that is going to screen it um, before it goes to the president. So you're kind of the last person to do that. And that's true of, of the non-legal staff there. When you're making a policy recommendation of the president on Russia policy, um, the president's going to hear that from you or see it on paper. And, and um, you're kind of the last recommendation. So that's uh, a little bit challenging to get used to. Um, and I think, um, again, dropping back to just, you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And you need to know across the interagency, you have something going to the president who needs, you know, and this is one of the great things I think that ties into some of, you know, the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps training um, that you, you may be familiar with is inside many operations centers, whether it's Navy, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force, you often see a big sign on the wall. Or for our Navy, our Navy, uh, Navy Marine Corps folks, you may see a, a big sign on the bulkhead, right? And that sign probably says something like this. What do I know? Who needs to know it? And have I told them? And I think that method of you know, planning, and that equally applies to, you know, military service. Um, and so I took that with me. And when I would be 
challenged with something, I would ask myself, you know, what do I know? Who needs to know it? Does somebody at the State Department and the Defense Department and the CIA need to know about this? And have I told them? So one of the challenges in coordinating and integrating the interagency, which is which is really the statutory function of the National Security Council. And let me get to your question about the differences in administrations. Um, they were um, very different, very different. Um, I think one of the differences, you know, and I'll leave kind of some of the editorial comments, um, you know, just to myself, but one of the, the challenges you would have under any new administration, and I'm talking about the early days, the first six months of the, the Trump administration, is you have a lot of new people in positions at senior levels of government that have not done it before. And our job as the professional, non-political, apolitical staff of the National Security Council is to help any administration get their sea legs, so to speak, to get, get their bearings and, and be able to start functioning well. So there were a lot of challenges early in the Trump administration in that regard. It's a new team. Um, it, it is not a political statement from me to say that when General Flynn was fired as the national security advisor to President Trump three weeks into the job, that that was disruptive. Um, it's no different than if you had a battalion commander, squadron commander, the captain of a ship who gets relieved. It's very public. It's very obvious. And um, switching out leadership can be, can be disruptive. So there was, there was that to deal with. Um, and there was certainly a lot of um, media attention on the Trump administration and the direction that they were trying to go. And so there were some challenges there. Um, so, um, so those are just a few of, a few of the challenges of working there and then trying to straddle two very different administrations. Sir, I'll end it on that note. Thank you so much again for your time, your mentorship and your service to our country. Um, to our listeners, you, if you're interested in more content, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Go Irish and Semper Fidelis. Go Notre Dame. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.